I downplayed this virus <clears throat> as much as possible, but I thought that it was grossly exaggerated. I was one of these people who thought that he could never get it. And I hosted numerous events <clears throat> in and around the Boston area and Massachusetts of many people, anywhere from 70 to 200, to even 300 until, but again, that was before I got sick. When I got sick with the COVID and when I infected members, four members of my family, then then I had a complete change of heart. There were nights that I didn't think I'd wake up, but now I see the necessity of the shutdowns and the closures and the restrictions that, that, that you've had. Being personally, being one who scoffed at wearing masks and social distancing and whatnot, <coughs> um, I no longer... I realize the necessity of it. I don't roll my eyes at people when they do it. I used to. Hello and welcome. This is Perspectives, a podcast that asks, why do people change their minds? Uh, my name is Anna. I am a master's student at the Columbia School of Journalism. And my guest for today's episode is Tom Mountain, the Massachusetts Republican Party Vice Chair. A quick disclaimer, this interview took place on January 5th, 2021, but I think the content is still relevant given that the coronavirus is not leaving us anytime soon. Uh, this is my third ever podcast and the first that also includes video. So if you have any feedback as to how I could improve, please let me know. And without further ado, here's the podcast. Um, so you are the vice chairman of the Massachusetts uh, Republican Party, is that correct? Yes, I wear many hats, and I'm also the vice chair and founder of the Massachusetts Republican Jewish Committee. So I wear many different hats um, in the Republican hierarchy as a Republican official, but yes, that's currently my title. So I'm also the Republican State Committee a man from this district. It's an elected position. I was a chief delegate for the Republican National Committee. I was a member of, of the platform committee for the uh, Republican National Committee. Um, let's see, I was on the Zionist Organization of America Executive Board for this for the Northeast. Um, and um, I was a Trump, I was the Trump campaign regional director for Massachusetts. So there are others, but again, I won't. Um, I have a long political resume that goes back many years, but that's really my life now is is embroiled in Republican politics. And so, prior to when you got COVID, what were your thoughts? Because I've I've seen some of your Facebook posts, and you seemed like you kind of thought it was over exaggerated, or maybe even a hoax. Is that correct? Well, I didn't think it was a hoax, but I thought that it was grossly exaggerated. I was one of these people who who thought that he could never get it. And I hosted numerous events in and around the Boston area and Massachusetts of many people, anywhere from 70 to 200, to even 300 over the summer. But they were all outdoor venues because in, a, in an election year, that's what we have to do. So, but again, I was one of these uh, anti, not an anti-mask person, but I scoffed at the idea and I would only wear it when I had to, when it was required to go into private businesses, private settings. 
And I downplayed this virus <clears throat> as much as possible uh, to the point where um, I, like many Republicans, I viewed it as an infringement on civil liberties. We're in a mask and having uh, shutdowns everywhere. Our state, <clears throat> see, you can tell I'm coughing and that's, that's the byproduct of this virus, which I have. So I, I wasn't a denier, so to speak, but again, I was one of these people who thought I would never get it. And the, the constant shutdowns, the constant, um, shall we say, the curtailment of, of venues that I used to go to, um, challenging civil liberties, I was all aboard with that until I get sick. And, and then when I get sick, everything changed completely because my kids, my adult children warned me continuously about it that I, was, I could get it and I didn't listen. <laughs> but what I think happened was um, when, when we in the Northeast, when we had to move indoors in December, it's not like LA where you are, where it's sunny all the time, we had to move indoors. <laughs> then I think then the virus has the potential to spread <laughs> um, exponentially, which it certainly has in Massachusetts. Now, I was warned not to go to the White House by my family. My own spouse, wife refused to go because of the fact that <clears throat> it's been well documented that the White House, shall we say, the White House events have been incubators for the virus. And again, <clears throat> I went with not even thinking of that, not even thinking that um, I could get it. You know, if it was there, well, I wouldn't get it. But lo and behold, I went to the party and um, at the White House, everyone, when you walk in, you have to wear a mask. And then all the guards, the, the personnel who work there are all wearing masks. But then when you're in the big, um, when you're in, essentially the, the whole Hanukkah event took place on the first floor of the White House, including the East Wing. So between the East Room and the State Room, they had the big banquet and normally in the other room, the State Room, the president comes. Um, but nobody was wearing masks. When you eat, you don't wear masks. When you photograph people, you don't wear masks. When you're mingling, you don't wear masks. I don't always wear masks. I mean, I at least had one that I would put on a little bit. But even the few celebrities who were there, they didn't wear masks. So, so you have a situation where, where we were there for three hours and in the span of that time, Everyone's in close quarters. And these are people who come from all over the country, from the West Coast, Gulf Coast, East Coast, and everyone in between, about 200 people. And it was cut down from about three to 400 the prior year because of the, again, of the COVID. <coughs> and um, they had a second, a second event, a second Hanukkah event uh, later on that evening. So at my event, it was early evening. And by the way, we waited and waited for the president to come. He didn't come. He was, I was told later on that he was tied up with the um, Israel-Moroccan peace treaty or negotiations. So when he did come, he came after my event and into the second event and he was still wearing, wearing his overcoat. So that was a disappointment. Um, but again, I had been in his presence many times and in particular at the prior White House Hanukkah events, uh, he was of course there with the vice president and, and everybody and a who's who of- uh, Have you met him? Yes, yes, several times. So at what moment did you start to realize you might be sick with COVID? Well, well, what's interesting is that when I went to Washington, I've done a, 
enough times to know how to get there and how long to stay and how to get back. It was just really a one-day trip. I flew down. There were only 16 people on the plane. Can you imagine that, a jumbo jet? And I, 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 walk, I got there early enough. I walked around Arlington National Cemetery a lot, and that's very hilly. But I was feeling perfectly fine. And then I went to the White House event, and I was per feeling perfectly fine. And then I left and came home and I was fine. I was perfectly, perfectly fine. But there's a rule There's a rule that in Massachusetts that if you go out of state, especially far away like I did, you either have to quarantine for two weeks or you have to get a COVID test. You have to get a COVID test. So I opted to get the COVID test within 72 hours. Now, when I did, which was on a Friday, I started to feel a little like I was getting a cold. And then by Saturday, I wasn't feeling well at all. And by Saturday night, um, early Saturday evening, well, it was actually nighttime, the doctor called me, said I tested positive, I gotta go to the emergency room right away. When did you take your test? Because I have pre-existing conditions, the Friday, and, it's, and 24 hours later, I got the results. So within, about a three-day period after having been to the White House, I got sick, and and then I went to the emergency room, and uh, there I was, and there I stayed, and it was a it was a nerve-wracking experience because my condition was such that I really couldn't breathe. Well, I could breathe like I'm talking to you, but if I, well, actually at the time, if I talked a lot, I would cough and I couldn't take deep breaths now. And what they tend to do is if you can't breathe on your own, then they put you on a ventilator. And a ventilator, it's not like they give you an oxygen mask like a pilot. They make a slit in your throat and then they put a tube down your throat. And it's a horrifying experience. And I was not gonna go on that by any means at all. So <laughs> they kept asking me if I could breathe, how am I doing And I, I exaggerated and told them that I was, I was better than I was because I was not going to go on a ventilator if I could prevent it. So you were really struggling so, breathing? So calmly, I talked my way out of that. Well, not to the point where I couldn't breathe. It's sort of like being an asthmatic in that if I took deep breaths, I couldn't, um, I stopped coughing and weeping. If I spoke for a while, like I wouldn't be able to speak like I am to you, then I'd start coughing. Prior to leaving for Washington, I specifically saw certain people that I knew I wouldn't be able to see for a few weeks after that, because again, I knew or had heard that the White House wasn't incubated for the virus. So many people, including the president, got it. So for example, I saw, I went to see my barber to get a haircut and I saw a 93 year old Holocaust survivor. And when I came back, I pointedly contacted them to see if they got it and the virus and they didn't. And in the events that I was at prior to that, <laughs> I do a lot of speaking, public speaking. Nobody at my prior speaking engagements got it. So nobody at all got it, which is how, which is why it's, it's really a cause and effect process of elimination. Um, I had to have got it at the White House. Am I entirely certain? No, there's no way it can be. <laughs> and it's even been suggested that maybe I was the spreader there. They said that on MSNBC, of course. I don't oh. think I was, but but nevertheless, I, uh, that's what happened. And, and then when I was released from the hospital, I came home. 
my condition worsened to the point where I had to go back to the hospital. <clears throat> you know, in, in a situation like this, you only go back to the hospital if you have no choice. So I had no choice. I had to go back there. <clears throat> and when you're in the, in the COVID unit, it's one of the most unpleasant places ever because you see people on ventilators, they're almost comatose. They're probably not gonna make it out of there, which is why they're there. They put you in an oxygen sealed room. They attach you to all sorts of gadgets and machines. And then they determine what to do with you. And, and the key thing is to um, either give you these, these super deluxe intravenous drugs or they put you on a ventilator or they give you prescribed medicine and treatment and send you home. Now, luckily I was in the last category where they sent me home. Um, but in the interim, um, several members of my family got infected, uh, which I was very disturbed about, but oddly enough, um, nobody, I was the one who was hit hardest by it, by the virus. And even um, elderly people in my family that who got hit by it were not hit like I was. Were you and ever, I'm still dealing with it. Were you ever worried you weren't going to make it out? Oh, yes. There were, there, were, there were nights that I didn't think I'd wake up. Wow. Um, it was that. And then I, uh, because it's, you know, when, you, when you're just coughing and see, it's a multifaceted um, um, virus in that there's so many symptoms and I've, I've had just about everything, all of it. I mean, you, you know, you taste. have the chills. Yeah, you, you have the chills and you have a fever. And, you know, I, I, I would be, I'd wake up when I could sleep in the morning and I'd be completely soaked. And then, and then I, 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 I try to sit up and then I freeze because it's cold here. So it's, it's a very unpleasant thing. I couldn't eat for a while. I couldn't, um, and I couldn't, I could drink. But the other thing it does is um, it, it prevents you from, I couldn't read, I couldn't focus, I couldn't concentrate, it clouds your brain, your reasoning, your thinking, things like that. So when reporters called me once, they caught me off guard. And I, I think I said most of the right things. Sometimes I, <coughs> I didn't, I know, like when the Boston Globe called me. And then when they did call me and I, I spoke to the Globe and then I spoke to a local television network, after that, then it, it mushroomed and it went all over the country. It went all over the world, actually. It was, in the, it was even in the London papers, the, the Israel papers. But what they, especially the liberal press, what they were looking for is a condemnation of Donald Trump and his, uh, because, um, because they, that's what they do. They like to condemn the president for any reason possible. And this was another reason to condemn him because he's had these holiday parties and of course people are gonna get sick. And of course this happened and this and that. And that's what MSNBC did. And, and um, I didn't go on MSNBC, but they did a story anyway. I stopped talking to the press. I, I wouldn't speak to the Washington Post because they know they're biased, but they did a story anyway. So a lot of the news clips that you see about me, um, I didn't speak to most of them. I only spoke to two, really, actually three venues, two TV and one uh, in the Boston Globe uh, and, the, and the Jewish Journal. CNN wanted me to come on live and ABC News did too. And I refused to do it because again, 
they were going to be using me as a pawn to get at Trump. Do you <laughs> feel, why do you feel that Republicans in general are more skeptical of this virus? Well, I think because it's they see it as really an infringement on civil liberties and and with a lot of the draconian shutdowns in certain states like New York, New Jersey, California, uh, Michigan, Massachusetts, they all tend to be very liberal states. And with the exception of, of Massachusetts, they all have Democrat governors. And what they see is really a really draconian rules set us um, by governors that more or less um, curtail uh, the operations of businesses and commerce. So in other words, when restaurants and stores are closed, they see that as we, Republicans see that as an infringement upon civil liberties and, um, and their, their rights to commerce. So, so I, um, I agree with you, but what I'm confused about is there seems to be, you said that as a Republican, you felt that the virus was exaggerated and you weren't kind of trusting, I guess, the media's analysis. Is that a fair thing? No, to that's say? right. Yes, we weren't. Yes, we're well. First, number one, we're distrusting of the mainstream media anyway, and second, we're distrusting of government edicts, government executive orders anyway. So we're just naturally skeptical as Republicans, um, and we don't like being. And Republicans also don't like being told what to do and how to do it. We don't like being told you have to wear a mask, you have to do this and that. So in general, Republicans just have this really, really, um, shall we say, a um, individualistic <coughs> attitude and mantra towards <coughs> anything that the government says or does, unless it comes, of course, from the, from the government which they favor, which is that of Donald Trump. Now, bear in mind, the president, despite the fact that he got it, there weren't too many times you, you hardly ever saw him wearing a mask anywhere until he gets sick. On the other hand, you think do you think the president do you still do you think the president was was right or wrong or neutral in not wearing a mask or do you have an opinion on that well the, he did he did what he felt was right for him when he got sick and he didn't he did the opposite of what joe biden did and he didn't feel the need to wear a mask and and he i think that he's he he was of the mindset that if you want to wear a mask, you can. If you don't want to wear a mask, the government, my, at least his government, isn't going to tell you to wear a mask. So that's really, I think that that was his mindset that people can wear masks. And, they, and at the events, the Republican events that I would go to, sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. So I don't, so that was his choice. And the liberal media has chastised him for not wearing a mask all the time and for as they see it, contributing to a lot of um, a lot of uh, the spreading of the virus, which is no way to to accurately determine that. So they don't really know. They just speculate. Now that you've had the virus, has that changed your opinions about mask policies? Like, do you think there should be more of a mandate? I don't know. Well, I'll give you an example. I'm fairly close with the Republican governor of the Commonwealth, Charlie Baker. And when he found out that I was sick, I had to, I, uh, he called me and I, I almost cowered at that point because although I hadn't been with a megaphone condemning uh, the mask wearing and the shutdowns, many of my colleagues did and have. So, and I, I told him, I said, governor, I, 
downplayed this continuously. And, um, but, and I, but now I see the necessity of the shutdowns and the closures and the restrictions that, that you've had, that he, the governor has had. Um, and I told him, I said, um, <coughs> it's a very difficult position to be in because if he shuts down restaurants and bars and whatnot, then they may eventually go out of business. But if he doesn't shut them down, then a hundred more people or a thousand more people may contract the virus and die. So it's a very difficult position to be in. It's, it's public health versus um, curtailing, shall we say, businesses to operate uh, effectively and continuously. It's a very difficult position to be in. And I've come to realize, at least in our state and in other states where the virus is, is really, uh, has really hit hard that, that in, in most cases, the governor, or at least I, let me just specify, the governor in our state was, was absolutely correct and is correct in his shutdowns in Massachusetts. Now, other states are different. For example, where the, the state that you're in, New York, um, they took it to, to, an, to a ridiculous extent and they did things that were very callous, very, very miscalculated by, for example, putting COVID patients, elderly COVID patients back in nursing homes where it would spread like wildfire and so many thousands died and they didn't have to do that. And then in your state, in, in, where you're from, California, they have these really draconian rules where they're even shutting down outside dining in restaurants when, I mean, fresh air and sunlight, that's really even the most um, zealous doctors uh, on the COVID shutdowns would even say that, that there's nothing wrong with that. Shutting down beaches, it's just absurd. Um, but so different states have tackled this in different ways. But one thing that I've found is that being personally being one who scoffed at wearing masks and social distancing and whatnot, <coughs> um, I no longer, I realize the necessity of it. I don't, I don't roll my eyes at people when they do it. I used to until, but again, that was before I got sick, when I got sick with the COVID and when I infected members, four members of my family, then, then I had a complete change of heart having, having, uh, having uh, acquired the virus and having acquired it, not, not dramatically bad, but bad enough that I'm still dealing with it. Um, I contracted it officially December 11th and now here January 5th and I'm still very much dealing with it. So do you think social distancing should be more of a bipartisan kind of idea? Yeah, well, I think that I think that it's really a common sense thing at this point, um, <coughs> because uh, again, uh, unless people really either get it or have somebody in the family who, who gets the virus and they're a denier, then they're not going to they're not going to do it. Now, as an example, I went to a, a very big indoor meeting in early December here in Massachusetts and there were calls to have December 24th, 21st, a mask off day. Now what that meant was people were gonna go into malls and stores and take off their masks and just prance about in large numbers. There's been help. protests like that in California, I know. My yeah, mom has seen them, yeah. Republicans, conservatives and whatnot. Now the problem, so I was all for that, I wouldn't participate in it because I think it's, 
It's just not something I do. But but uh, but at the time, I I was amused by that. I agreed with that. Now I think that it's crazy. I think that it's crazy. And and I've been telling people, anyone who would listen, my colleagues, uh, my Republican colleagues who would who would not be inclined to be careful that you have to be careful, especially those of us who are middle-aged and the elderly, because you could get it. And if you get it, you might not come out of it. And that's the problem. And that's the, that's really the issue. And I've been also saying this in the general media. And, and again, my, the governor has, has called me in and been very much in support of my, um, my comments and commentary in talking about this. Right. And I know I've seen in certain communities, I've, I've seen it personally in the Persian Jewish community, there seems to be like a lot of distrust of the mask wearing and those kinds of things. It, it's interesting why certain communities are more distrustful of others. And I think it's sad that yeah. we're so polarized that people won't believe media even when it's true. But just in terms of the media, um, I, I, there's still the divide between Republicans and Democrats and, you know, Democrats have always been, I think Democrats, liberals have, have really taken this virus to an extreme in that they'll wear masks all the time, even when they're driving alone in their cars. There's no moderation. There's no middle ground. Republicans also take it to an extreme in that they'll only wear masks if they absolutely have to, because Republicans are very big on private property. So if a business says you must wear a mask to come in to a business, then they'll wear it. But other than that, they're not going to wear it <coughs> in the public sphere. So there's really, it's really become um, a, a symbol of uh, an ideological thing. Those who wear masks all the time and those who, who hardly ever wear masks. And it's a divide that, that will never be bridged except on an individual basis when people get sick or within the families when they get sick, but the media <coughs> cannot and, won't and will not play a role in convincing Republicans to really um, wear masks because um, first of all, we don't tend to watch the mainstream media anyway. I mean, it's what we tend to watch is um, Newsmax, um, America, the American Network and um, Fox and that's it. <laughs> that's what we do. Do you ever you so you don't even watch it just to hear what the other side is saying? Uh, no, never. And I'll tell you, um, one of the th I don't really I haven't watched the news programs lately. But one of the things that Fox does is they will take out the snippets of MSNBC, CNN. It's like the best of uh, their absurdities, and then they will um, then they will critique them on their station. So honestly. I don't, I wouldn't even know who's on CNN or MSNBC were it not for the Fox stations that I watch. <laughs> but we've, we've had this, um, this distrust and antagonistic relationship with them for a very long time since the, at least the, um, the convention, the Republican convention in 2016 of which I was a member. <laughs> so that's been going on for a while, which is why I purposely don't speak to them and won't speak to them on any issue because they don't they don't like or or will will try anything to get at republicans um sometimes i'll make exceptions with friendly reporters but in general i won't deal with them i won't speak to them 
one thing I think is a problem on both sides is like you said, like people will watch snippets of the best, like the most absurd things that liberals will say and the most absurd things that Republicans will say. And I've, I've seen both do this as entertainment. Now that might be fun for like a few laughs and giggles, but in terms of um, maybe having a constructive discussion, I feel like it's really detrimental. It's really not so good because if you wanna have a good discussion, you gotta hear their strongest arguments. And then, you know, if you're right, you'll refute their strongest arguments. If you're, if you take the, if you play against their weakest player, you know, it's not a fair fight, right? Does that make sense a little bit? Well, we don't, well, you see if in the political realm and especially in an election year, we, the mainstream media is aligned with the Democrat party. So we don't deal with them at all. And, and again, especially in an election year, such as what we've been going through for a long time, um, our, we don't speak with or deal with them at all because there's no purpose in doing so. We know who's going to vote with us and for us and who is not. And we, we don't even bring our messages to, um, to those forums. <clears throat> and, um, you know, for example, like I said about the MSNBC report on me, I had never watched it and I didn't even know who these reporters were until they had me, my story on for three and a half minutes. And again, they, they didn't even call me. I, I honestly, I wouldn't have spoken to them anyway because they did exactly what I, what I would think that they would do, which is use me to go after the president because that's what they do. So just in terms of, um, but what I think you're alluding to maybe is trying to find a common ground among Democrats and Republicans and, and, and I don't want to disappoint anyone, least of all you, but, but really, um, we really have nothing in, in common with Democrats or liberals, absolutely nothing. And, and our motto is and has been in terms of dealing with Democrats is, is uh, we win, you lose, just in terms of the electorate. And, and that's, how, that's how it's been. And that's really how it's gonna continue for better or worse. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that to, to really make a political statement, but I will say this, there were 74 million Americans who supported the president and who voted for him and there's allegedly 80 million people who voted for um, Joe Biden, which we think is, is, is a, complete, a complete falsehood. And especially with this election, if it carries through to the point where Joe Biden is, is sworn in on January 20th, then, then the divide in the country will have been cemented to the point where there will be absolutely no communication between the two huge sides of 70 million here and 70 million there. Now, in my in my particular life, I have, because I live in a liberal community, I'm on very good terms with the Democrats, liberals here who run the city, the mayor, who's a Democrat, and my friend called me several times when I was sick. So I, I try to get along and I do get along with as many people as possible. It's provided, of course, we stay out of politics. And, and there's a lot of overlap that I, I have to do as a civic leader in my community with, to deal with certain things. For example, I spoke at the Veterans Day event as a guest to the mayor. And, um, and the, the other speaker was a, a, a newly elected congressman. And when I went to 
and whom I really um, have nothing in common with and I don't particularly like, but when I went to congratulate him on his elected election of Congress, he said, thank you. And then he says, and congratulations to President-elect Biden. And at that point, I couldn't say anything and, and didn't um, because it was like trying to tweak me. So, so my point is that um, just in general, outside of what we're discussing, and I'm not giving an opinion out to it either way, um, what you're going to see is a, is a much further divide in this country between the two, the two halves, those who, who voted for one faction and those <coughs> who voted for the other. And, you know, it didn't used to be like that. When you were, when you were born or when you were young, Bill Clinton was president and there really wasn't a, a, a hostility towards him among Republicans, there was still the idea, well, he's the president and, and you know, you don't have to, there's no great divide in the country. And with George W. Bush, a lot of the liberals mocked him, but, you know, but a lot of them, they, there wasn't this, this, shall we say, hatred of him. But I think what's happened is there's really a genuine hatred of Donald Trump among the Democrats, among the liberals. And and among the conservatives, the Republicans, there is a genuine affection, if not love for the president, um, an emotional connection, however one can describe it, which I've never seen before in my life. And there really, there really, really is. I've what, been what do you think, what, I've, I've noticed that too from a lot of Republicans that I've yeah. talked to. What do you think it is that creates that emotional connection with the president? I've been to large rallies and smaller rallies where the president was here because <clears throat> because they the people feel as though he's speaking to them and he understands them and he understands their needs and their wants. Even though he's a billionaire, they see him as a blue collar billionaire and he speaks their language and he's rough around the edges because he's grown up and worked in the construction industry his whole life, the real estate industry, the rough and tumble politics of New York City. So they can identify with him. They can relate to him. They they feel that he feels their um, their pain, as Bill Clinton used to say. But um, and they didn't get that from Obama, who's who's comes from the scholarly intellectual world. Donald Trump doesn't come from that world. He comes from the street world. But he went to the, an Ivy League school. He right? did. He, I'm told, he went to UPenn uh, from the time that he was a boy in high school and junior high. His father deliberately immersed him in the construction world, doing menial jobs such as mixing cement and and more or less being a gopher around the construction sites. And every summers, all the summers from that, he worked in construction and in that business. And Donald Trump, in turn, had his boys work in that business as well. And um, which, because he wanted, I think that both Trumps, the father and grandfather, wanted their kids to really be in tune with what it's like a to work for a living and b to be in tune with the common people and to understand their um what it's like to really um be them so to speak instead of living in the lap of luxury um so again you know when donald trump donald trump is one who can speak to and relate to the people and not too many presidents have that have that talent I think George W. Bush did. Um, Bill Clinton pretended to, but he was a bit of a phony and people saw right through it. So the round, and even Ronald Reagan did not have that talent, but Donald Trump does because it comes naturally, which is why 
there is such a devout following of the president. There, there is such an intense loyalty towards him that I've never seen, again, towards any president in my life. Uh, <coughs> what you will see tomorrow in Washington, D.C., I think um, not one million, but two million, maybe even more will show up for the rally for him to support him. That's what you will see. But that is because I think in many people's minds, this is tomorrow's a big day, January 6th. That's when things are either going to happen or they're not. And it's, it could be the last hurrah. And um, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to say it is. But one thing that I realized is never count Donald Trump out. He can come back in a heartbeat. So in our minds, like I'm still wearing my Trump jacket and I still have my Trump lawn sign on my lawn. And, and I'll continue to do so until the election is officially declared and over. But, but I mean, that's, I know that this is a whole different <coughs> topic from what we initially uh, were speaking about. And right. um, this could, you know, I could, I could pontificate and elaborate on this all day because having been immersed in the Trump campaign since 2016 and having really been the, the shall we say, the, um, the leader um, in keeping the Trump campaign continuous since that date in my area of Massachusetts. Um, I'm just, I'm very much in tune with the whole Trump phenomenon and can decipher it and understand it and hopefully explain it to others who, aren't, who don't understand it as well. But I, I like right. to think I- Which is why I'm, I'm grateful to talk to you because I have kind of been at the other end of it. I've been in college, so I can very well explain the liberal perspective of why people are very disturbed, you know, and, and there's, I, I personally am not the biggest Trump fan, but I think it is important for me to understand why it is that people like him um, at the very least, because he does have this very intense appeal that I have, I agree with you that I have not really seen with other leaders. Um, it's not, it's not even, <laughs> a question of like, like people, Republicans like George Bush and they voted for him. It's really, and, and I know that this, this may sound a bit corny and, um, and, and maybe out of the ordinary, but there's really a genuine love, a genuine connection that people have with the president. I mean, there and, is a, a one parody article I saw that <laughs> was like, I mean, it's a joke, but it was like, Christianity isn't about, isn't a religion. It's a personal connection with Donald Trump. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> but but bear in mind, Donald Trump is also in practice and has been the most pro-Israel president in history. But you know, there's not this same intensity for um, our feelings for Joe Biden. It just isn't, and no. um, which is why we don't believe he got anywhere near 80 million votes. I mean, at his rallies, he barely got a few hundred people. If he but... had an outdoor inauguration, how many people would actually show up? And for the inaugural parade how many people would actually be there. I know how many people were at Trump's inauguration because I was there in the front and there were about a million people there and the parade route was jam-packed. So what I'm saying is that there's- that There's there a lot of people that hate hate Donald Trump. He's a very, <laughs> I mean, you have to admit it. He's a very polarizing figure. He is both loved and despised. I don't know very many people that are neutral about him. Well, that's right, nobody is. But what I would have, what I would say, and I'll even go out, out on a limb and say this, that 
that this election was really about two basic human emotions, love and hate. Those who love Donald Trump and those who hate him. <clears throat> because again, I will say, nobody has really any strong emotions about Joe Biden. How in the world can they? Uh, he's like the cardboard cutout of his former self and he's been there forever. But, but at this point in the game, you're right. Uh, people, nobody is neutral on Donald Trump. You know, like with George Bush and Bill Clinton, people would take him or leave him, not Donald Trump. And that's that's the that's the crux of the matter. And he alienated a lot of Republicans, you know, even with his comments about John McCain. Uh, you know, he he. I, I, so a reason that I think he he makes a lot of enemies. He says some things that. I feel that a nice person would not say, frankly. Well, he he alienated uh, he alienated a segment of the Republican Party through John McCain, but um, but not a large segment. Really, what has happened is <laughs> the Republican Party is currently and has become the party of Donald Trump. It is one in the same. Now there are some offshoots, and um, but those Republicans who are never Trumpish, shall we say? They're really on the fringes of our party. They're not recognized as mainstream Republicans. Even Mitt Romney has fallen from favor dramatically. And, uh, and, I was, and I worked closely for Mitt Romney. I actually ran his election day rally at his polling place in 2012. So my point is that, that the, the so-called never Trumpers are not recognized as being um, as really being a part of the party anymore. Um, now, granted, we did not have a Republican convention this year, and I wish we had. It's such a great loss for all of us, me personally. But had I been there, the, it would have been much more intense than the one in 2016 with the with the unified um, solidarity for Donald Trump, it, because there would have been no room for for the Never Trumpers as there was before. It would have been very, very different. But the point is that- Well, don't you think though, if he's capable of isolating members of, of who used to be pretty staunch Republicans, don't you think it's possible that he could lose the election? You mean this election? Yeah. Well, certainly, uh, no, no. Um, certainly Republicans didn't vote. Um, the, the What tends to happen is Good Republicans will always vote for the nominee, no matter who the nominee is. And really, the the offshoots, the the fair-weather Republicans won't do that. We have this in our state as well, because we have a liberal Republican governor, and there are people who think he's too liberal, so they don't vote for him. <laughs> and it's the same thing with <coughs> with um, with the Republic with Donald Trump. For example, you have people in um, commentary and and other magazines. Um, you know, William Crystal, John Podharitz, uh, the neocons who wouldn't vote to support him because the neocons, they just won't do it. And Donald Trump is, is just not their type of, of Republican president. And uh, he's very, very different from any Republican president before. I would say the closest Republican that comes to him historically is Teddy Roosevelt. He has so much in common with Teddy Roosevelt and Andrew Jackson. They both fought against the establishment. They, they both were, were mocked uh, by the established Republican establishment at that time. And yet they had the, they communicated with the people, especially Teddy Roosevelt, despite the fact that he was an aristocrat. 
and they still managed to um, have a huge following. They had a huge following and they accomplished a great deal in the, in the terms that they were president. <laughs> and I think that if Donald Trump, um, if this election, by the way, again, as Republicans, we're not convinced until tomorrow, probably by Friday. Tomorrow's gonna be a big day, January 6th. Um, <laughs> we were never convinced, we never referred to Joe Biden as the president-elect, we never did. And, and eventually we, we may have to. But even if that's the case, Donald Trump could easily come back in four years and run again and win again. It's happened before in American politics and it can happen again. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I wanna be mindful of your time. So I know you've been, you said it's been difficult to speak when you're dealing with COVID, so. No, well, I can speak in so far, but, I, but I'm also going to cough. That's right. I yeah. Can speak off. <laughs> that's that's the way it is. But we covered a lot of issues. Yeah, I you know maybe I'll do a follow up video. Unfortunately, I have class coming up soon, no, no. so I'm gonna have to get off. Well, you have a good day. Thank you so much. Have a great yeah. evening. Yes, by all means, call anytime, dear. Bye bye. Bye. bye.